Welcome to episode number 38 of the Better Bible Reading Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Morse. Well, thanks for joining me, everyone. It's a pleasure to be along with you in yet another conversation here on the Better Bible Reading Podcast. And today is episode number 38, entitled Joy to the World, Seven Ways Advent Teaches Us the Value of Knowing the Bible. And that is a mouthful, but I wanted to capture every aspect of my intent on this episode within the title. We're in Advent season. Many of you know this in the way that your church approaches the month of December. It's an emphasis on Christmas that goes beyond December 25th, but it's a kind of formal celebration and in some ways kind of a preparation of the mind for the Christmas story that Jesus Christ has come into the world. And it's a good thing for us to think in this way. I I think about Bible reading plans that focus on Advent. I think about special hymns that really emphasize the Christmas message. You know, there's a lot of ways that our churches and our time spent in corporate worship on Sundays can really impact our approach to Christmas. And in like fashion of what I like to do on this podcast, my intent is to focus on those aspects of Bible reading that relate to kind of the more broad categories. Two episodes ago, episode number 36, I talked about finishing the year well with a Bible in hand, and I was encouraging all of you to make the most of the rest of this year as you read your Bibles. Don't wait until January 1st to start getting back into things, especially if you've kind of fallen off the rails of a normal reading schedule in your life. But today, we want to talk about especially the idea of Advent and how Advent, which is just another way of saying Christ's coming, so the Christmas message, how it actually teaches us the value of knowing the Bible. We focus on Christ at this time of year, and we make an emphasis on the Christmas message, but sometimes we forget that while Advent is about Jesus coming into the world, that there was a purpose for Jesus coming. It wasn't just to come and die on the cross for our sins. If that was the only intent that God had in sending his son, then it seems rather odd that he would have come as a baby, grown up, lived a full life, if the only significance of his life was to die on the cross. It seems like all that in-between time should have just been skipped. It's kind of irrelevant. But of course, we don't hold that Jesus' life on earth was in any way irrelevant. It had much impact and much significance, which is, after all, why we have the gospel accounts in the Bible. But sometimes we think that way when we think about the Christmas story. Think about the Christmas story. Most pictures you see or 
nativity scenes, right? It's all it's all about, of course, a nativity scene is going to be about Jesus as a baby. But most of the time, that's our only concept of Jesus in relation to Christmas itself. It's like the celebration of his birth. But remember that his birth was just the means to the life that was anticipated that the Messiah would live. So in other words, when we think about Christmas, it's not out of the question or kind of a reach to emphasize that Christmas is not just about Jesus' birth, but it's about the life that he came to live. The starting point, of course, is his birth, the birth story, Christmas Day, as it were, that we celebrate. But that's just a means to the bigger picture, the life, the full life that he lived. And so today, I want to show you seven ways that Advent, the story of Christ's coming, teaches us the value of knowing the Bible. And we look no further than the way the Bible describes Jesus' life from beginning to end. So I have seven that I want to just give you here on this episode. These are not in any particular order, but they're just seven principles or seven lessons, seven things that we can take away from the story that Jesus Christ has come. So let's go right into it. Number one, Jesus is the Word. That's the first lesson that we can learn from Advent. And this comes straight from John chapter 1. Most of the time we think about the Christmas story, we think about the birth of Jesus, and that's to be understood. But we also want to stress that even though the Gospel of John does not cover Jesus' birth, or it doesn't cover him growing up as a, as a boy and maturing into a young man, it still includes, from the very outset of the book, the right way that we're supposed to think about Jesus, and that is that he is the Word of God. We read that in the very beginning of John's Gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Let me move down to verse number 14, and this is that major emphasis that Jesus says the Word says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the right way that we're supposed to think about Christmas. It's very common that Christmas stories, Christmas messages, Christmas postcards, you know, all the things of that nature depict Jesus in terms of his humanity. And that's, again, not bad. It's not wrong. It's it's very much a crucial aspect of understanding the Christmas story. But what is also a crucial aspect is his divine nature, and that is the very Word of God who became flesh and dwelt among us. And it's interesting choice of words there that John uses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to describe Jesus as the Word of God. He could have chosen a lot of different ways to describe him. Of course, there are different ways to describe him throughout the Bible. 
but his emphasis here is that Jesus is the very word of God. We think of aspects such as truth, the very beginning of the gospel account when he says that all things were made through him. So you think of that, the power of God's word, the very beginning of Genesis 1-1, where God spoke the universe into being, into existence from nothing, that power, that authority, that essence of who God is, is what we mean when we say God has come to dwell among us and he has put on flesh to do so in Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful, wonderful truth, and it is directly connected to the concept of God's word, the word of God. So it's the first way that Advent teaches us the value of knowing the Bible. If you don't see the connection yet, you will shortly. The next one, number two, is that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's word. And I don't mean that in the same way that John says that he is the word of God, but rather I'm thinking about Jesus' life and the way it is documented. We think of, for instance, in the gospel of Matthew, one of the most important parts of Matthew's gospel is when he says again and again that this took place, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. When you open your Bible to the gospel of Matthew, we have the birth of Jesus Christ documented in the very first chapter of Matthew, and it's communicated to us with a lot of detail. But one of the things that you notice is that everything from the name of Jesus to where he should be born at to what the historical circumstances of his birth are, all of those things are captured in the gospel account of Matthew. So just in chapters 1 and 2, Matthew notes that Isaiah 7.14 is fulfilled that says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Or you think about that Jesus comes from Bethlehem. He's born in Bethlehem. Matthew says that's to take place as the fulfillment of Micah 5.2, which says, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. You keep reading, and what is also described is the place that Jesus will come from. And that is described as Joseph and Mary fleeing to Egypt. And why do they do that? Well, it's because Herod is a madman, and he is hellbent, if you will, on destroying this Messiah, this king who he hears about and is very much threatened by. And so Joseph and Mary flee to Egypt. Why did they do that? Well, not just because it seemed like a good idea, but it actually was to fulfill Scripture. Think about Hosea 11.1 1 is what Matthew says is fulfilled. I'll go ahead and read a little bit more context there. Verse number 14 of Matthew chapter 2 says this about Joseph, And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what was what the Lord spoke by the prophet, Hosea 11.1. 1, Out of Egypt I called my son. And then finally, we read this, that 
the very next verse, verse number 16, says this, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. This was to fulfill what was spoken of by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So the circumstances of Jesus' birth and the initial year or two of his life were very much a fulfillment of Scripture. Just in those, we have four different books of the Old Testament, Isaiah, Micah, Hosea, and Jeremiah, all fulfilled in the birth of Jesus Christ. And that's because Jesus is the fulfillment of God's Word. The Christmas story has more of a driving emphasis if we understand our Old Testament because Matthew wants us to understand this, that what is happening in the life of Jesus is the fulfillment of what is spoken of in the Old Testament. Number three, one of the ways that Advent teaches us the value of knowing the Bible is that Jesus' ministry was to preach the Word. We find this in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is going about his earthly ministry. Yes, he is healing people. Yes, he is doing a lot of different things, but the chief thing that he's doing or the primary thing he's doing is preaching the Word of God. When you get to Luke chapter 4, this is what happens. Jesus has just healed many people. Verse number 38 says, He rose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Simon's mother-in-law was ill with high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf, and he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. He goes on to heal more with more people with various different kinds of diseases and whatnot, cast out demons. And then the next little section, the very end of Luke chapter 4, says this, And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So Jesus is not only the word of God, his life in terms of the circumstances and events was not the fulfillment of God's word only, but even his message, even the content that he brought as a preacher was to preach the Word of God, to preach the gospel, and that was a primary focus of Jesus' life. And what that message was, no doubt, was Jesus himself making the connection between who he was and what the Old Testament had promised, again, embedded in the life of Jesus, embedded in the fact that Jesus has come to earth. The Advent story is the central truth that the Word of God is the primary focus. Number four, we're making good time so far, I would say. We'll see if I can keep up the pace here. Number four is this, that Jesus sustained himself by the Word. That's the fourth way that Advent teaches us the value of knowing the Bible. This one is one of those more well-known, or we can use the word famous, 
moments in the gospel accounts, and that is the temptation of Jesus. And Matthew 4 is probably the best example just because although it's included in the other gospel accounts, this one is the most in-depth in terms of Jesus' temptation. You have a threefold temptation that is brought about by the devil when Jesus is in the wilderness tempted for 40 days and 40 nights at the beginning of Matthew chapter 4. And the first temptation is this. Satan says to Jesus, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Verse number four says this, but he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Next verse, then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now, of course, we want to say this was Jesus, right? It wasn't us. But although that is true, it's interesting to note that what Jesus does here is not say, I'm Jesus, go on about your business, devil, but instead what he does is he cites Scripture. All three times, all three temptations, Jesus combats the temptations of the devil with Scripture. Jesus knew the Word, and that is how he sustained himself in the midst of trial and temptation. What's interesting to note here in this is that in the second temptation, Satan actually tries to use Scripture himself. Now, that's an interesting thing that we could talk about on an entire episode, probably. But he says this, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now, that, what is happening here is that Satan is actually quoting the Psalms. And he's using that psalm to incite Jesus to give in to the temptation. Now, of course, what Jesus does here is not enter into a lengthy theological debate, but it's important to note that Jesus evidently believed that Satan was misusing or misquoting or at least misinterpreting the Scripture. So that's probably a twofold lesson that we could learn here is that Jesus sees a primary emphasis on not just knowing the Bible generally, but knowing it enough to be able to combat a false use of the Bible. So that's really important for us to understand as well. Even the temptation of Jesus is focused and central, centralized upon the Word of God. All right, we have seven. We made it past the first four. We'll see what number five has in store for us, and that is this. Jesus prayed that we would be kept by the Word. 
Now, again, this is one of those interesting things where we think about the Christian life. We think about the fact that we are saved by Christ alone. We are saved apart from our own works. And the good news, the gospel message, and the Christmas story, Advent, is the good news that the King has come. That's why we say joy to the world, not, all right, here's a whole lot of rules and here's a lot of expectations that we have on our part, right? The, the focus is on Jesus and what he does, not on what we do. But it's interesting that in John chapter 17, when Jesus prays what's called the high priestly prayer, he's thinking about Christians, both in the present and in the future, which would include all of us, and he says this in his prayer to the Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And then verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So that word sanctify is understood in two senses. First, it's the idea of being set apart or being reserved for a particular holy purpose. And so we're set apart by God's word, but also the way that we use the word sanctify is to speak of our progression, our growth, our being shaped more and more into the image of Christ in our Christian lives. And the way that that happens, according to Jesus, the means that God uses is his word. That certainly includes Jesus as the incarnate word, but also includes the Bible, the words of God that have been preserved and kept and pinned for us to read day in and day out. And again, Jesus demonstrates this in his earthly life as something for us to think about and think about very seriously. In that same line of thinking, number six is this. Jesus taught the centrality of knowing the word concerning him. Now, this one is really a way of bringing together the idea that Jesus is the incarnate word and that the Bible is the inscripturated or written word of God. We find this in the Gospel of Luke at the very end of the Gospel, Luke 24, is yet another kind of famous moment in the gospel account. And that is after Jesus' resurrection, there's a couple of disciples that are walking on the Emmaus Road, and they're upset and they're burdened because they don't know that Jesus has risen from the dead. They just know that their Savior and who they thought to be the Messiah has been crucified, and all hope is lost. And Jesus shows up and speaks to them, and at first, they, they don't recognize him, and it's a very ironic moment in this gospel narrative of Luke. And Jesus says this to them after they have conversed with him for a little while. He says this, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe, believe what? All that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And then verse number 27 of Luke chapter 24 is the pinnacle verse here. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
That was, to be sure, the Bible study of all Bible studies, and oh, that we could have been there in person. But what is important to note is that we have Moses and all the prophets, everything that Jesus referenced, we have in what we call our Bible. It's right here in front of us. We have it at our fingertips. And we also have the direction given to us by Jesus himself that we should view the scriptures, especially the Old Testament here in this context, as being Christ-centered, being focused and centered upon him. Him coming, of course, in the story of Advent, but also the way that the fulfillments and the types and shadows find their full completion and full fulfillment in Jesus himself. The Christmas story is all about the Bible. It's all about the Word of God. It's all about Jesus Christ himself. And of course, we can say the Christmas story is about the Bible because the Christmas story is in the Bible. But the Christmas story has much more to do with the whole Bible than it does just the Gospels. Finally, number seven is this. When we think about all of those aspects, let's let's run through them. Let's recap. Number one was that Jesus is the Word. Number two, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's Word. Number three, Jesus' ministry was to preach the Word. Number four, Jesus sustained himself by the Word. Number five, Jesus prayed that we would be kept by the Word. Number six, Jesus taught the centrality of knowing the word concerning him. And then finally, Jesus' pattern in the word is demonstrated for our example. And there's a few different places we could go to to illustrate this in the New Testament especially. But one of the places that I think is really important for us to look at is in 1 John chapter 2. Let me read verses 1 through 6, with the emphasis on verse number 6, says this, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Then verse number six, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now, where do we find the way that Jesus walks that we might model that? Well, we find it in the gospel. We find it in the Advent story. We find it in Christmas and what we are celebrating, the fact that Jesus has come. But to circle all the way back around to my first point I made, that Jesus did not come just to die on the cross, but he also came to live a perfect life as an example for us. And what are those examples? Well, it's the very things that we've been talking about on this episode, the first six lessons that Advent teaches us. Number one, that Jesus is the Word of God. He's the fulfillment of God's Word. His ministry was to preach the Word. He was sustained by the Word. He prayed that we would be kept by the Word. He taught the centrality of knowing the Word. 
all of these emphases on the Word of God, the Bible, what God has said to us, and what Jesus has taught us, all of those things embody the life of Christ. And we are to have the same respect. We are not to be little Christ, to be sure. There's only one Jesus. There's only one Christ. But we are to be imitators of him. We are to live in light, not in darkness. We are to walk in truth, not in falsehood. We are to love as he did not hate. And we are to live to the glory of God just as his earthly ministry was to the glory of God. And the way that he did all those things was by a repetitive reliance upon the word. And he did so on our behalf. He did so for our example. This is the pattern that he demonstrates to us. And John says, whoever says he abides in him, if we say we're Christians, we say that we belong to Jesus, then we ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. All right, so those are the seven ways that Advent teaches us the value of knowing the Bible. And I think this is important for us to think about because sometimes we do divorce the Christmas story from the overall story of the Bible, or at least we kind of limit the Christmas story to only be about Jesus' birth. But again, Jesus' birth gives way to his earthly life, and his earthly life teaches us the centrality of knowing the Bible and seeing it as our valued and prized possession as a gift given to us from the Lord himself. Well, Merry Christmas to all of you. I hope this episode has been helpful and you've enjoyed this conversation. Head on over to betterbiblereading.com where you can find more podcast episodes like this as well as written articles and a free gift for you that you can find right there on the home screen. A quick six-step reference of how you can read your Bible to the greatest effect. You can eliminate the distractions that pop up all the time, and you can learn how to focus and concentrate on what is in front of us in the text so that our reading experience of the Bible is enjoyable, fruitful, and glorifying to the God who has given it to us. Have a great rest of your week. Merry Christmas to all of you, and I look forward to being with you on another episode real soon. 